Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 10. After Hours with Paul McCusker. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and it's therefore an after-hours episode. And today, I'm interviewing Paul McCusker. Paul McCusker is a writer of many different kinds of things. You may know him from Adventures in Odyssey, the Focus on the Family radio theater, the film Beyond the Mask, the Father Gilbert Mysteries, or the Augustine Institute audio dramas Brother Francis, the Barefoot Saint of Assisi, and The Trials of St. Patrick, or from many other dramas, novels, scripts, or lyrics. He simply can't make up his mind what he likes to write. But he's here today because of his C.S. Lewis projects, such as the Chronicles of Narnia audio dramas, C.S. Lewis at War, his audio production of the Screwtape Letters, as well as his book, The Annotated Screwtape Letters. Paul McGusker, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Now, you've been involved in a lot of C.S. Lewis-related projects, so we've got a lot to talk about today, but we have some standard rituals that we do here at Pints with Jack. And the first is the quote of the week. And since you're a writer, I thought you might appreciate this line from Till We Have Faces. It says, quoting the fox, to say the very thing you mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less or other than what you really mean, that's the whole art and joy of words. And next up, we have our drink of the week. And so I'm drinking some Ashentoshen as well as a nice cup of tea because it's Sunday afternoon and that's what Sunday afternoons were made for. Are you drinking anything? I am having PG tips, just your basic run-of-the-mill PG tips tea. I think it uh, might even be decaffeinated, which some might oh, find. Oh, oh, oh. But that, my wife made the tea for me. She's English. She made it for me. We do it properly. Glad to hear it. But it's very tasty, though I will admit, uh, not only do we do milk, but I actually do sweetener, which I know is Ooh. now, it used to be in fashion. Now it's completely out of fact, you know, so uh, I just uh, usually not reveal that unless, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that makes me a rebel or what that makes me. Well, the fact that you, that you married a Brit, I think we're just going to give you a pass for the time. Okay. Being. <laughs> <laughs> you can't write it off to me being an ignorant American, but um, yeah. Just stubborn. That's the only explanation. Absolutely. Now, in the introduction, I named some of the projects that you've been involved in previously. Uh, would you mind just kicking things off by giving us a quick sketch of your career thus far, the things you've been involved in? Well, um, well, yeah, golly, a quick sketch. You know, I've been at this such a long time now. Um, but uh, yeah, I, my, my career, I've always wanted to write. I mean, at the point when I could read, I was sort of expressing myself through writing as, at a very early age. And um, though it was much later that I thought, oh, I think I'm going to write anyway. Maybe I could get paid for it. So um, really, I can't, it's so funny. I can't even give advice to anybody about a career path because I could never have contrived what turned out to be my career path. Um, I started writing dramas for my local church at a time when nobody was doing 
sort of stage dramas. And because of that, uh, that work wound up getting published, which then connected to uh, a gentleman named Chuck Bolte, who was a key player in what we would call Christian drama. He did a touring group. He was head of a touring group called GMI People. And I, I mentioned that because it was then my connection to Chuck that ultimately led me to focus on the family who was just beginning to do these audio dramas called Adventures in Odyssey. So, and he was aware of me because I was writing stage dramas. So my whole stage thing led to audio drama. The audio drama then led, obviously was Adventures in Odyssey. And then the extension of Adventures in Odyssey proved to be um, uh, the desire that Dave Arnold and I had Dave Arnold being um, a sound designer for Odyssey for years. He's now executive producer. But um, we wanted to do grown-up dramas, and our motto was kind of secular-worthy stories from a Christian worldview. And, uh, and we wanted to do adaptations of classics, dramatizations across the board. And uh, Focus on the Family got behind it. So uh, we, um, our first was Christmas Carol, and, and that was 20 two, 23 years ago. And uh, then we did a few things leading up to um, our big production of Chronicles of Narnia, which we did and other Lewis dramas. So I, I seem to have gotten pulled into the audio drama reality, but as an extension of that, then I started writing kids novels, grown up novels, all kinds of novels along those lines, which then overlapped into some screenplays and things like that. So that was the short version. <laughs> now, quite a lot of your projects have involved C.S. Lewis. Did you grow up reading him or did you encounter him later? I, I encountered him later. And it's funny because when I was growing up, it's like I had friends who said they, they were constantly referring to Chronicles of Narnia and Aslan and, 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 and all of the Lewis stuff. And I, I tend to be a bit, um, I can be stubborn about certain things that when everybody is telling me that I have to do something. Uh, not to do it. So in school, and I have to admit, I was not a huge fantasy fan. The same people were going, oh, you got to read Lord of the Rings. But I was very, um, I was more, more into other types of stories, which were either along the slice of life, drama, mystery, uh, and even supernatural kind of horror stuff, uh, Stephen King and that sort of thing. So it was actually, I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it, was my wife. Now, my wife's English. We met in California, wound up getting married in England. We've lived in England. But she just was appalled, I think, that I, I simply hadn't read Chronicle of all things. And I was beginning to work on a children's program, Adventures in Odyssey. And it's like, how can you do this and not have that as part of at least your understanding? So I, I think it was primarily through her that I said, okay, I'll, I'll read these things. And I, I read them, and like so many people, I was completely enthralled by them. I, I was just moved in all the right ways. Uh, and then I became, and it was through that, because I'd heard of, and I think I'd either read or tried to read Mere Christianity at various times earlier. But through Narnia, that really did lead me to C.S. Lewis. And then once I, I read The Seven, and I went, well, i, I got to figure out this guy, the guy who's behind it. I was like a Mark Twain fan, and I actually wound up probably reading more biographies of Mark Twain than I did Twain stuff, even though I read quite a bit of it. It was kind of that thing with Lewis. I began to read about Lewis's life and was very impressed with him and then got drew into, drew, uh, drawn into his other works. Uh, 
And so that was really it. So that was my late 20s overlapping with my starting to work with Focus on the Family. And and then, as I said, when we moved on, not moved on, but when we added to the Adventures in Odyssey effort, this Focus on the Family Radio Theater, um, one of the things that happened, we, we approached the Lewis estate at the time and found out essentially that Doug Gresham, C.S. Lewis's stepson, was, was a big Adventures in Odyssey fan. He really liked what we were doing there. And for various reasons, he couldn't, he couldn't make it work that we would do Narnia immediately. So we had a couple of years doing other projects and then circumstances changed and then we were given the rights to do the Narnia audio dramas. And um, which then also drew me in closer to Doug Reshum, who I still consider a good friend after all these years, we're still in touch. And uh, so we started with Narnia and then kind of went on from there to some of his other works. Well, Doug will actually be on this show, I think about two episodes after today's episode airs. Yeah, he's he's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, oh, he is. He is a, uh, some would call him eccentric. I have a deep and abiding affection for him and, and some of his eccentricities. He's very much himself. <laughs> you know, he is very much him in terms of uh, the way he talks and the way he dresses. Everything about him is very much Doug. And yet, um, and with that comes, I think, uh, great wisdom. Uh, I think uh, I always love talking to him, and usually there are great nuggets of wisdom that come out of uh, any subject that we're talking about. So, yeah, I'm telling him I said hi. Will <laughs> <laughs> do. Now, today we're going to be focusing on your work with the Screwtape Letters. But before we get to that, I really wanted to highlight some of the other C.S. Lewis projects that you've worked on. Uh, so, to begin with, you wrote a book called C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, The Crisis That Created a Classic. And you also worked on what I was assuming is an associated audio drama, C.S. Lewis at War. What were these projects about? Well, what happened is, um, putting it kind of out of order, we, we did Chronicles of Narnia. And then when we talked to Doug and said, well, you know, what do you think should be next? Um, and then it was screw tape letters. We said, okay, well, we'll figure out how to dramatize that. So we did that. And it was after that, that we said, well, um, what about the next one? I mean, you know, there's a science fiction trilogy. There's Till We Have Faces. There are others we could do. He said, well, if you're just looking in terms of popular uh, sellability, you know, basically mere Christianity would be the next thing. At which point I thought, well, how do you dramatize mere Christianity? <laughs> Well, then the idea came to dramatize the story behind Mere Christianity, because when I studied Lewis's life, that period of 1939 to 1945 was astonishing in terms of the conflicts in his life, including World War II and the Blitz and everything else, um, and also personal conflicts going on. And yet he was incredibly productive. He wrote tons of stuff during that period, including Screwtape and the broadcasts. Um, that would be eventually become mere Christianity. So we thought, well, let's tell that story. So we actually did the drama first. So I'd written, written out the drama and I had kind of everything in place. And after we did the drama, the discussion came up, well, why not do a book to go with the drama rather than the other way around? And I, well, I did all that research. I may as well go ahead and put it all in the book and, and do that not as, not, not as fiction, but as a nonfiction 
book about that whole period of Jack's life. And uh, so that's how those two came came uh, came about. I, I mean, it's astonishing. You go back to that period for him, and it is breathtaking what he was up against and then what he accomplished in that time. Now, you just mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia production. Uh, and here at Pints of Jack, we discuss one Narnia book each season. So we were working through them one at a time. We work through one major work chapter by chapter. And then we have a few episodes at the end of the season talking about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we're now, uh, we'll be talking about The Silver Chair uh, later this season. Uh, but one of the messages that we've had from listeners most often is asking us about the Focus on the Family adaptation, because it's widely regarded as the best, and people want us to do a series on it, which I've promised them we will do. Uh, so in anticipation of whenever we manage to schedule that, uh, what could you tell us about the production of all the Chronicles of Narnia uh, by Focus on the Family in terms of an audio drama? Well, it's... It... Well, the first thing, and I think one of the things that allowed us to get the okay to do it was that I was determined in the, in the dramatization to stay true to the source material. And that I uh, wasn't Hollywoodizing. I wasn't going to make any changes. I mean, the only changes that I determined that I, I would make would be those things that I would have to make to accommodate the fact that we were doing an audio drama, that you couldn't see certain things. One of that necessitated, by the way, a storyteller. And we were very clear about this. It's not a narrator. It's a storyteller who's sort of being C.S. Lewis for us. And we were very fortunate to get um, the renowned and wonderful um, Paul Schofield uh, to do that for us. And we we just began. I mean, we just began to tell the stories and dramatize them. I think we went through hundreds of actors because we cast everything. I mean, we, we basically had the budget and we just put together everything in order to make it. And honestly, behind the scenes, Dave Arnold and I and everyone involved kept thinking, this is kind of our one shot. We've got to get this as right as we can get it um, uh, because we may never be able to do this again. So with that, we were determined to do everything we could to make it. I mean, we don't think in terms of it's the definitive audio drama, but we thought this is our opportunity to try to do this this work justice um, that up until that time you'd had various productions, primarily the BBC production, um, and and that that was fine, that was great for its time and what it was doing. But we thought we're bringing all of our disciplines, everything we've learned about audio drama in a present day sense, to this production now, doing a movie of the mind, and uh, and that's where we started. And each each story, everything was casting each and every part according to what the voice evoked. You know, does it sound like, does it sound like a badger? How do we get <laughs> an actor who actually can pull off sounding like a horse without sounding like Mr. Ed? You know, <laughs> and we're up against all the perceptions and we don't want to do comic book. We are actually trying to create a sonic experience that really makes it sound like we took microphones into Narnia and captured all of these events as they were unfolding for real. Mm. Uh, that that's that was driving us all the way through. Wonderful. Well, let's now talk about your screw tape related work. So, in two thousand and nine, you produced a radio theatre version of the Screw Tape Letters, and it starred Andy Circus. People will know him as Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, as well as Laura Michelle Kelly, 
Eileen Page, and someone I grew up watching in As Time Goes By, Jeffrey Palmer. Mm-hmm. Where did the drive for this project come from? Was it simply, hey, we're working through C.S. Lewis's works. This is the next one to do. Yeah, well, in some respects, yes. And part of it isn't just, you know, marketing or what makes sense in that respect. Well, it's, it's twofold. One, one would be, well, it is the obvious next thing. If you're going to do it, it's that or mere Christianity. But let's say screw tape letters. And, um, and of course, the power of it. I mean, a big part of what we do is related to, much like C.S. Lewis, it, it's not doing something just for the sake of doing it, but for its potential impact. So our view was, well, lots of people read it, but if we could create an audio version that people would listen to, it might actually introduce people who find Lewis daunting to read. Uh, apart from Narnia. So how do we do this in a way that will engage them in a different, uh, from a different approach? And so there's sort of the impact side of it, but then on the personal side, it's the challenge. The challenge was, okay, I, I got how I could do it with Narnia, already being a story in a traditional storytelling um, format, but how do you do it with a series of letters how do you dramatize it? You're not just, we're not, we, we said we're not going to do an audio book. It's, it needs to be, have the components of an actual drama. So then we, we cast, for example, Bertie Carvel, who's gone on to do tons of stuff uh, that I think American audiences might know through. I think he usually shows up on in PBS um, programs that you would see there at Masterpiece Theater. But Bertie Carvel played Wormwood, which some would argue is, might be the most thankless job you could have as an actor. Um, but we had to make him a true character and give him more than just, uh, yes, no, but to have him asking the questions, but also being a character responding to what Screwtape was saying. So the whole idea of how to dramatize it was a great challenge. And how, how would we do that? And, and what would that sound like? What does hell sound like? What, how are we framing this, but also framing it in its, um, original context, which was uh, the 1940s. It was during the Blitz. He references the Blitz throughout the letters. And it's, it's, so engage it basically as a drama, if not in the pure beginning, middle, and end. And yet Lewis uh, had a story arc to it. So you sort of have that in the, in, in the process of not only screw tape, but Wormwood and the, and the whole arc from where we begin all the way through to uh, the death of the patient. So there were multiple things behind it. And of course, getting an Andy Serkis um, was proved to be pivotal. I, I will admit this. I don't know that we've admitted this publicly, by the way. So you might be getting uh, an exclusive here. <laughs> we had actually talked about Jeffrey Palmer as Screwtape. And we were struggling a little bit because in the 1980s, John Cleese did a reading which in many ways, because it's John Cleese, and he does that sort of uh, snotty bureaucrat thing, <laughs> that it, for me, it was almost definitive. You know, it was like, well, we're dramatizing, we're not doing what we did. But to have Jeffrey Palmer as so brilliant, we thought, well, it, is, is that going to be like a rerun of this? And I'll, I'll confess that uh, we, we had looked at um, Andy Serkis as a possible Wormwood. But I was listening to Andy 
And of course, when you say Andy Circus and they think Gollum, and then they're thinking they had Gollum, or <laughs> thinking it's Gollum's voice. Andy is a very robust, deep, resonant voice. So if you listen to the drama, you know that. But he he was so strong. I said, my, my problem is you put him as Wormwood and you're going to come up against uh, screw tape's going to have to be even more formidable than that. And how do you do that? Then we began to move from the direction of a Jeffrey Palmer, who would have been brilliant and, and would have been more expected to what if Andy Circus is, is screw tape? And how does that change the energy? How does that change the dynamic? Because now you're not dealing, you're not dealing with old school British bureaucrat. You're actually dealing with a new generation of, of bureaucrat who can be very aggressive, very, you've got to do it this way kind of thing. And it, it changed the dynamic for us. And so um, the choice of Andy and what Andy brought to it and, and Bertie and the rest of the cast um, gave us a whole dynamic in the studio that to this day, I remember with some t- on, on occasion, great a, f- a fondness as I would expect to, but also that exhilaration of, of working in that context with those guys was amazing. As soon as you said that you'd considered Jeffrey Palmer as screw tape, I immediately thought, oh, of course, obviously. But I think you are also absolutely spot on. Circus's screw tape, I find intimidating. There, there is a threat underneath everything that he is saying that, you know, those that, that boss that you really don't want to annoy, not just because he'll be cold and calculating, but it's just like, he, I think he'd go crazy. I don't know what he would do, uh, and 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 that's Circus's screw tape. When when I started listening, because I will also admit I started listening to this as like, well, I've listened to the John Cleese one. That is the version. Yeah, uh, and it was it was incredible how a, a new dimension, a different kind of life, was brought to the work in in the way that you guys did it, and also in the adaptation process. I saw because I knew I now know the text quite well because we're going through it chapter by chapter on the show, and I started seeing oh some rhetorical questions now no longer rhetorical there's now somebody that is bouncing off, uh, as well as some wonderful bits of dialogue that were introduced so a few exchanges between the patient and his mother providing some context for what Screw Tape and Wormwood are now about to to discuss, and where we're at in the season at the moment the bit where uh, Wormwood is rehearsing. Uh, by himself, preparing to reveal himself to the patient, <laughs> just just delightful. Uh, how how do you how do you set about trying to do that? How do you set about trying to adapt a work that is this well known, uh, and with these sorts of constraints? Because you need to change some stuff, but you've got to do it with some fear and trepidation. <laughs> well, and that was it. It was basically taking a letter because it's funny. Almost every word. Almost, I, I'm not sure what we're missing, but almost every word in screw tape letters is pretty much there in the drama somewhere. And uh, I mean, very little was left out. So it's very pure in that respect, very um, true to Lewis. But when I got into more of it, it's a drama. So, okay, he's he is now telling us, screw tape is telling us what's happened off stage with the patient, the patient meeting the girl patient among friends, what kinds of friends would those have been? And I realized, well, that's fine when you're reading the letters, but how, how do I capture that and capture it authentically? 
So I had to go back. I actually went back to books by Evelyn Waugh and other writers from that time period to try to even get the spirit and the sense of what Lewis was writing through Screwtape about, the kinds of people at the office and what they would have sounded like, the kind of sneering humor and those kinds of things, thinking, well, I've, I've got to show that. I've, I've got to uh, not tell it because Screwtape already does that. Now I'm going to show it. It's the same thing like the opener. I'll tell you what was um, uh, revelatory to me and even breaking through how to do it was the whole idea of Screwtape meeting Wormwood in, in the pub. <laughs> that opening, and I, I think I say this in the film documentary we did at the time, but it's, it's very, and maybe for those who aren't writers, it may seem obvious, but for me, it was pivotal because when I was trying to figure out how do I even get into this? There are a number of ways you can come into this kind of thing. How do I make it real without it being real? How do I do this without encroaching on anything that Lewis had said or done and um, or what his intentions were as best as we could discern them? So um, even that moment, at the moment when I have screw tape engaging with Wormwood and they actually go into the pub and then they have the first conversation there, essentially the first letter. Um, that then told me what it was I could do and what I should do throughout the rest, looking for opportunities to show rather than just tell some of the ideas behind the, each letter uh, as best as I could. Now, there's a really neat behind-the-scenes video uh, that I found on YouTube, and I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, but as we as we wrap up talking about this production, can you tell us a little bit more of what it was like putting together the the final product, having the actors in studio, reading your material, and and uh, putting it all together? Well, yeah, and it's it's interesting because we we did for for um, Andy's sake, we did it chronologically. Sometimes we'll do the audio dramas, almost like a film shoot where you're consolidating scenes and actors based on their avail availability and then you bring them in. And, and so you kind of record out of order. And we had to do that a little bit. Bertie Carvel was in a stage production at the time. Uh, Andy was busy with other things. And so we had to get everybody in at the time that we could get them. So there were a few scenes, I think, that we actually were able to record with Andy and Bertie in there at the same time. Um, uh, we prefer that. Uh, this goes back to our Odyssey experience where you want that dynamic of people facing each other. It's not like they do with animation most of the time where you're just recording one person and then another character, another character, another. So in this case, we tried to uh, engage as best as we could. But the nature of so much of what Andy was doing uh, really was him on his own. You hated, you hated for somebody to be sitting around for these long sections where he's actually lecturing. Um, and Andy, um, as I say in this documentary, Andy performed it. This was not an audiobook. He performed every bit of it. And that was, on, it, it was, on one hand, it's part of what makes, I think, a, a brilliant performance. It makes it brilliant to listen to. Um, but it was exhausting for him. And I've said this elsewhere, but I'll say it again. He was exhausted at the end of each and every day. And he, he finally admitted somewhere in there that he said, this, this is the most exhausting thing I've ever had to work. Because not only was he doing the performance, but the performance had to have meaning. He had, to, I mean, we needed to understand what was being said. And 
as I pointed out elsewhere, I, I would hit the button and say, Andy, that was brilliant, but I didn't understand a word you said. <laughs> and he, he laughed. I remember him laughing once and said, oh, well, neither did I, you know, and because he had to bring together this very, I mean, I want to call it dense, but Lewis's writing is, is intricate. Yeah. And what I found, by the way, when I decided I, there were there was a point in an early draft of the script where I was trying to to simplify, to to try to reduce things to a little more declarative sentences, because you'd have long sentences, paragraph length sentences, and as soon as I did that, it was like you're pulling out the thread and the garment falls apart. <laughs> the intricate way that his mind was working and the very specific thing that he was trying to get to in the writing. So I had to keep that to a great degree, which meant someone like Andy had to navigate through it, hitting the beats, hitting the words in a way that would then be sensible to the listening audience. And, uh, and I got it. He, at the end of the whole thing, he was exhausted to the degree that uh, I have hanging on my wall. He came in one day with pictures to autograph. And I, almost never ask for autographs. Um, and I didn't ask for one. And he said, oh, I'm going to give you one anyway. I'm going to give you one. <laughs> it's a picture of him as as Gollum, you know, him wearing the outfit and looking at Gollum. But his, and it's hanging on my wall here, which is, dear Paul, don't ever ask me to do anything like this ever again. Love it. You know, it's that sort of thing. That's how exhausted he was by the end of it. So the dynamic in the studio was intense in the sense of, of getting it and getting it right. Um, and then, of course, we take all those tracks, and then it's a matter of the sound designers, Dave Arnold and Nate Jones and the gang, crafting sonically this reality of how, how do we get in sonically into one reality and into another and in and out when screw tape's sort of in hell and then it comes into our world and then it comes out again and the things that they did to signal that sonically so the listener would know we've shifted uh, in that. And Nate Jones, on his own initiative, by the way, if you buy the uh, DVD set, the set with the DVD in it, on the DVD is a surround sound version of Screwtape. If you really just don't want to sleep at night, listen to that. Yeah. Well, he did some things that on purpose to sort of put you on edge, creep you out a little bit. You know, just to make you edgy, not overt horror, but he put some things there to make you feel uncomfortable. I do think it's very appropriate that Andy found it all exhausting because that was how Lewis described his experience in writing the Screwtape Letters. That's right. why he didn't want to do any more. He says it was all dirt and grit and nothing yep. good, true and beautiful was allowed to ever enter his mind as he's trying to write from this demonic point of view. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he said... I think it was during this time that he went into uh, spiritual direction. Yeah. And he kind of went in to get some spiritual help in that because he made it very clear when people said, well, how could you engage in that? He went, it was all too easy. He just looked at his own life, his own heart, his own mind, and could readily come up with things that were diabolical in that way. Andrew Lazo, one of our co-hosts, he says that he has been to Lewis's room and he has seen the object that allowed him to see so clearly how he could write works like the Screwtape Letters. It's called a mirror. <laughs> exactly. And it's there. Actually, yes, I've been to the kilns. And um, such a modest office, too, considering the brilliance that came out of it. Um, but he was simple in that respect, C.S. Lewis. 
uh, and and yet it's you're absolutely right. I mean, the mirror thing. If you read his letters, it's interesting. You have kind of the public persona, but if you go into his letters, uh, there are many volumes out there. You you do get to the heart of the man, and you find how genuine he was in in living out his faith, but that he also came up against many of the same struggles that we we do on a regular mm. basis. It was no different for him in that respect. So let's talk about your other major screw tape work. Uh, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Lewis's death, together with HarperCollins, you published the annotated version of the screw tape letters. And as we're reading through the screw tape letters in this season of Pints with Jack, this is actually the version that I'm reading. Uh, because not only is it beautiful, it's a lovely, lovely book, hardback, nice font, and I've also found the notes to be really helpful in preparing for our episodes. And as I mentioned earlier, we've had Doug Gresham on this podcast a couple of times now, and he's the guy in charge of the Lewis Literary Estate. And in the introduction to the book, you explain that he wasn't initially a fan of you attempting to do this. No. It, it, well, it was, it was interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, the book came out of, and I explained it, the book came out of the scripts because I'm staying true to Lewis's work and I'm using words that he used. And our own team kept flagging me on things. They gave me notes as they do on all the scripts. And they would say, what does he mean by this? What is this word? What is this phrase? Now you're English, so you might know already what some of them are. But not all. But it became, well, some of them are outdated in terms of writing from his time. And they've kind of gone out of uh, gener a general understanding, even in England. So number one was the notes about you need to you need to clarify this. And I went, well, I don't feel comfortable changing the words. I mean, I can see what I can do with it, but some of these things were just how he wrote. Well, that's that started the idea of an annotated version, which was, and I wasn't necessarily thinking I should do it. Uh, I was actually thinking a scholar should probably do it and 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 get deeper into it than, than even I would. But that was Doug's problem. Doug came back and said, my problem with, annotated versions, uh, he said, is that um, the annotations usually interpret the material. He wants, he's, and he's still very much of this mindset, and I agree with him. You know, go to another book if you want to read interpretations of Lewis, you know, what people think Lewis meant by this or whatever it was, um, but not in a Lewis book. Let, let it stand on its own. Let it, you read Lewis and then let Jack speak for himself, and then you decide what you think of that. Well, I explained that I, I didn't even think I, I was competent to in, to dare interpret Lewis in that respect, um, and certainly not a scholar. So my statement was, no, the idea would be to illuminate. In other words, how can I do it and just make connections and say, I'm not interpreting what Lewis means. What I will do is certainly define or at least clarify certain words and phrases that would be unfamiliar to a modern audience or a modern American audience, especially, but then also look at how it connects to other things he wrote. You know, that there are ideas here that he unpacks over in Mere Christianity or in various essays or in other places. So it would illuminate Lewis in that respect, but not interpret at all. And with that in mind, uh, Douglas agreed. 
Doug said, okay, that, if that's what you stick to, then, then I'm, um, let's try it. Let's see what happens. And, uh, and that's, that's what we did. And I am a great fan of this idea. And I think most of Lewis's books need this because if I have to fault him as an author, he too often assumes that his readers are, are as well read as he is. And he very often doesn't provide that necessarily one or two line context for the literary quotation he's going to provide. So I'd personally like to see that on all of his books. Well, and we had talked about that, um, doing more and, and I'm, I'm not quite sure we've all kind of moved on other things. So, um, I haven't gone back to readdress an annotated mere Christianity or any of those, um, because Lewis was very attuned to his time. It has been said that Lewis didn't really think his writings would go beyond him. There's a quote. I mean, apparently he even said to um, Walter Hooper. It might have been to Walter Hooper, um, but I understand that he had said, oh, no, five years from now, nobody will even know who I am. So he wrote contextually. Screwtape was written for a specific audience, the Church of England newspaper, as it was then. The, the, what was it? The Guardian. And uh, uh, not to be confused with the Manchester Guardian, but he was writing for them. So he understood or he assumed that audience would know certain things that most of the vicars and the readers of the church of england newspaper would know same thing with mere christianity but different audience he knew that came out of the bbc broadcasts so he kind of tailored it but you're absolutely right i don't know that people were more intelligent than we are um maybe they are but uh at the time he did at least elevate. He didn't talk down. He used common examples, but he always kind of wanted to lift them up to kind of come up to a standard of, of reading and perceiving and grasping what it was he was trying to say. Listeners to this podcast will know that I love the word amateur, and I, I don't uh, view it as a bad word at all because it simply means one who loves. Uh, but surely you must have felt rather intimidated trying to write an annotated version of the Screwtape Letters, knowing that there would be scholars peering over your shoulder and making tutting noises all the time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was horrified. Uh, you know, I felt like maybe the way Jack felt when they asked for a problem with pain, you know, where he said, I'm not qualified to write this. And if I do it, I'm going to have to do it as a layperson. I, I, you know, I actually wondered, like he did about problem with pain, he wanted to write it under a pseudonym because he just didn't want to be completely slaughtered by people who knew better. And I felt the same way. Um, I mean, di uh, diehard Lewis fans are very, I mean, they can be, um, shall I say merciless maybe, but that <laughs> wrong. But I mean, it's like anything, they, they're diehard fans and they can just pick things apart. For me, I thought, well, I'm gonna keep this at a basic level. I'm going to write it and keep the notes at a certain level. People can agree or disagree with the connections, but the only complaint, it's funny, the only complaint I remember getting came from some people who thought it was a little too simple, that I didn't dig in enough. And my problem with that was that if I had gone any further than I did, I would be interpreting. I would have to interpret. And I kept drawing the line every step of the way, I even had footnotes that I cut out because I thought I've gone too far here. And this is not for them. The people who are diehard Lewis fans and who study to the nth degree what he's written and every, they already know this. 
I was actually much like the audio drama. I was trying to appeal to people who may not know and who might just be a kind of an introductory level for Lewis or for this particular work to help them with that. So in that, I had great peace of mind that if people were complaining that I, you know, was maybe too simple, um, then I could say thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Because that was my intention, was not to go uh, too far and and then actually betray, well, two things. One is betray my mandate, but also to expose myself as the fraud that I am in terms (laughs) of scholarly efforts. It's very similar with this podcast because we see it as a, a very similar idea. We're just trying to give people a little bit of a leg up and just to hear two people that really like Lewis talk about him. And maybe in our discussions, we will say something that helps somebody understand the text or view it in a slightly different way. Uh, right. And that that's pretty much where we that's where we end. <laughs> yes. I mean, I have only one regret. My only regret with the annotated screw tape was that right after we had finished it, uh, someone had unearthed an introduction to the Screwtape Letters in France. And if I'd known it existed, if I'd found it, I would have put that in there as an annotation, something just so readers could see it, see what he said differently there than he did and, and all of that. But it came out later and, I mean, just as well, because it's, I don't want to say it's non-canonical because it's by him, but uh, if we ever did a new edition, I would dig deeper in in more of what we now know and I've found since since then, if that makes any sense. Well, one of the things that I loved was that you had both the 1942 and 61 preface in the right. book. And right. I invited on Brenton Dickinson to come on the show and we spoke about the handwritten version of the mm. 1942 where he connects it in with the space trilogy. Mm. Yes. And, and it's funny because when I was researching the mere Christianity stuff, I actually went to the BBC archives with all the scripts. If I could ever do an annotated mere Christianity, Lewis had several multiple stages, by the way. It's fascinating. If you can ever look at the um, at, at the archives where it's bizarre to go in, it's typical BBC. You go into this archive center. I'm sitting there. They bring me a brown folder. And I open it up, and these are not copies. These are the actual letters by C.S. Lewis to the BBC and then back to him, his handwritten letters, his signature. And it's like, why Why did you not require me to wear gloves? I mean, <laughs> you know, I could do almost anything with these things, but it's sort of that bureaucratic thing, like they've got so much they don't even think about its value. Well, then on, on microfilm, they have the actual scripts, which I, I took I couldn't get all of them, but Lewis's process, much like screw tape and others, but in, in mere Christianity, what you see is his handwritten changes to his original script. So even down to the half hour before going on live broadcast for what became mere Christianity, he was making changes and rephrasing. And the guys at the BBC were responding to him saying, you've given too many examples. I'm not sure that one makes sense. How about this? And the give and take of that. So any annotated edition of Mere Christianity would be brilliant to actually show what he changed and explore a little bit of why he changed it, if, if not only because of its articulation that he found a better way to say it, but also because of its meaning, chasing down to make sure there wasn't a misunderstanding. We've had on the show Dr. Stephen Beebe 
who focuses on Lewis's skill as a communicator uh, and over his word choice and the, the way in which he communicates ideas. And we've also had on Dr. Diana Glyer and her big thing is about how the inklings interacted with one another and about how in community they pushed one another on and, and helped each other become better writers. And I remember her speaking about mere Christianity because that was the book that I thought was the most Lewis by himself. And I found out, nope, before that you had the RAF talks, then you had all of the interactions with the BBC. Uh, so yeah, he was he was always an author that was in dialogue with his audience on multiple levels. And even after he had been reading these things uh, on the air, people wrote to him. And so he adjusted them further to respond and even wrote extra chapters. Exactly. And that's that was him from, I think, at the point when he was became a Christian, when you go back to the early 30s, that it was put upon him at that moment that he needed to be a communicator for the faith. He saw what was happening in England and continued to happen. And, and, and in many ways is prophetic, a foreshadowing of us as a nation now. And he was constantly working at and refining his communication skills. What works, what doesn't work. I said it this way, is there another way to say it? Now he was a very polished author. I mean, very often you, you've got a, a, almost a final with his words. He didn't, he didn't go back and do draft after draft after draft unless someone could point to him through, through the inklings or through other sources that what he thought he was saying wasn't coming across the way he thought it was. Um, but he was dedicated to the communication, uh, the integrity that he brought to it, and not just to proselytize, because he was always beyond just mere proselytizing. He wasn't doing propaganda for the gospel. He he made sure that there was always well thought out integrity to every point he tried to make, even in even in any analogous sense in Narnia or screw tape. I mean, everything he just went through. Not only was he brilliant to begin with, but then refined it according to reactions from others, so he could make sure he was saying exactly what it was. He meant to say, thus going to your quote at the very beginning from Till We Have Faces, saying exactly what he meant. That's not only what he meant, but would be received by the audience as an understanding of what he meant. He didn't just throw it out there. And to me, that's admirable because very often we get into this sort of artistic, uh, the auteur director type, hey, it's what I meant. I put it out there. If you don't get it, you find you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, this is me communicating and your your pearls before swine and all of that. Whereas Lewis saw his artistry as integrally bound with with the impact and the ultimate communication, what how it was received on the other side. Hmm. Well, let's wrap things up uh, by talking about your personal relationship with the Screwtape Letters. Uh, how has that been as a reader and how did doing these projects change that? Well, it's, it's funny. It's an ongoing process because uh, as I find with Lewis, because um, every now and again, I'll be asked to go back and teach about Screwtape. And then I'm rediscovering things. I'm rediscovering um, uh, just points that he made, things that I'm understanding better. And of course, it's a process of life experience and age and all, all these factors come into play when we're reading great works, whether it's scripture or Lewis or writings of the great saints or whoever it might be. 
And so it's a constant rediscovery. And um, simplistically, of course, reading a screw tape just continually impresses upon me the <laughs> how easy uh, I can spiral into certain mindsets that are undoing spiritual growth and development. Uh, my ability to rationalize is infinite. Um, and uh, But to be aware that these things are going on, of course, is a big part of the battle. Just to know it's there and not just roll along with it as if it doesn't exist. So for, specific to that, um, and, and I'm rereading um, as part of a kind of a men's discussion group I'm in, uh, rereading uh, Mere Christianity now, and it's having the same effect. I'm just discovering, there's just always seems to be something new to discover there that has meaning for me now in a way that it didn't the last time I went through it. And that's the brilliance mm -hmm. of, I think, C.S. Lewis. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your work. And I would definitely love to have you back at some point to talk about your book and the radio drama regarding mere Christianity, because we went through that in season one. So it'd be nice to return to that. Uh, but as we wrap up this episode, can you please tell people where they can find out more about you and your work? Oh, um, well, I do have a website, um, paulmccusker.com, I think. Um, I'm on Amazon if you just put in Paul McCusker. A lot of the stuff will show up there um, or wherever good fine books are sold, whatever the old expression used to be. Um, uh, but those are two good places to go. The Augustine Institute, Focus on the Family still maintains, I think, a website for Focus on the Family Radio Theater. So materials there, especially screw tape and Amir Christianity stories and, of course, the Chronicles of Narnia. So it's all out there somewhere. <laughs> and I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Listeners, please find us on social media. You can always support us on Patreon. And not only do you get wonderful things like laser-etched Pints with Jack glasses, uh, you also get invited to the movie nights. We just had one just this last night, at least at the date of recording, when we watched uh, a C.S. Lewis movie, and then we all hung around and chatted for an hour afterwards. So if you want to be part of that, please find us at patreon.com slash pintswithjack. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.